0: And hatred for God in Romans chapter 1, verses 29 and 30, and also listing it among the works of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, alongside sins like sexual immorality, idolatry, sorcery, and drunkenness. But what makes sin so, what makes the sin of envy so serious? What makes it so deadly? Well, perhaps the best place to begin with that is to. Consider what envy is exactly. So, the first thing we can consider this morning is explaining envy. And it might be helpful to begin with a simple definition the offering of a definition of envy. Perhaps that offered by Jonathan Edwards, the 18th century theologian. Edwards explained envy this way. Edwards said, Envy is a spirit of dissatisfaction with and opposition to the prosperity and happiness of others compared with our own. Now notice that according to this definition from Edwards, envy is not simply about dissatisfaction and discontentment with our own life. It's a spirit of dissatisfaction and opposition to the prosperity and happiness that someone else is experiencing in his or her life compared with our own. And so in addition to just having a definition, It's very helpful to gain an even better understanding and greater clarity of what envy is by approaching, explaining it, by contrasting it with some other similar sins and vices. For example, jealousy. Oftentimes jealousy and envy are used as synonyms, but we can be more technical and more precise if we explain envy as what we experience when we have something or love someone with deep affection and are threatened with losing it. That's jealousy. Now, jealousy, from this definition, is not inherently opposed to the happiness or prosperity of someone else. In fact, jealousy can be sincerely dedicated to the prosperity and happiness of another if what's being experienced is genuine love for another. Jealousy simply says I don't want to lose what I love. Now that love can be corrupt and so jealousy can be a harmful thing but jealousy is not inherently sinful and that's distinct from envy and it's important to keep that distinction in mind that jealousy is not inherently sinful because the Bible often tells us what? That our God is a jealous God and God's jealousy is provoked when his people become wayward and stray from him, the source of their prosperity and happiness. And so there's jealousy over what he loves because he himself is the source of our happiness and prosperity. But we can also contrast envy with its cousin greed and its sister coveting. We can better understand envy if we compare and contrast it with these things. Greed is driven by a distorted sense of lack that produces a hunger for accumulation. Greed simply says, I want more. Whereas coveting is not essentially just about wanting more. Coveting is different. Coveting is a sinful desire to possess what belongs to another. A sinful desire to have what another has. In other words, coveting says, I want that one, the one that you have. So greed may very very well want to accumulate wealth, want to have numerous jobs, numerous houses. Greed may want spouses, a spouse or multiple spouses. That's how greed operates. But coveting says specifically this. I want your spouse. I want your job. I want your house. That's what coveting says. Now envy is like both greed And like coveting. Envy is a distorted sense of lack along with greed. And like coveting, there's a sinful desire to possess what belongs to another. But envy moves beyond coveting with a sinful, overwhelming desire for the other person not to have it. In other words, someone who covets wants your spouse, wants your job wants your house, but not primarily as a way to bring you down. That's really not what a coveter is after. Not so with envy. You see, someone who envies will derive no small amount of pleasure by seeing you not have something, even if in the end he or she does not end up possessing it himself or herself. Because envy says, I want what you have, and I don't want you to have it. That's what envy says. This is captured in a poem by Victor Hugo in which he depicts greed and envy both being granted a wish. The only drawback, the only hitch is that whatever is wished for, the other will get a double portion of it. So whatever greed wishes for, envy will get a double portion of that and whatever envy wishes for, greed will get a double portion of that. And so envy wishes to be blind in one eye. That's envy. This is the heart of envy. So you see that envy is not just obsessed with our own happiness. Your envy is not just an obsession with your own happiness. It involves a resentment of someone else's happiness as well. Which is why Edwards, again, to go back to his definition, describes envy or explains envy as a spirit of dissatisfaction with or opposition to the happiness and prosperity of another compared with our own. Somehow... Someone else's blessing is your curse with envy. That's how envy is operating. And so envy gives rise to a spirit of competition. Competition that says, I want what you have, and I will try to take it from you so that I can have it. But even if I can't take it from you, I will try to make sure that you don't end up with it. And so envy views life and it views relationships primarily as one of rivalry. A rivalry that is rooted in comparison. What you have that I don't have, but that I want. And it's not so much that the envious person wants it, it's that the envious person feels that he or she needs it. Because what's envied is is close to a sense of identity, a sense of validation for existence, of self-affirmation. Rebecca Conandike Young, who wrote a book called Glittering Vices on the Seven Deadly Sins, explains what I'm talking about this way. She says, when their rival outshines the envious, it is not over something negligible or trivial. Rather, their rival's success threatens the best part of themselves, the part they take pride in, something upon which their self-affirmation depends. In other words, the envious ballerina is not envious of the other person in the company because that other person is a better cook. The ballerina envies the other ballerina because the baller, the other ballerina is better. And there's a sense of identity and self-affirmation that's needed in that by way of comparison and competition. And so this results in all kinds of things and actions and thoughts. So what exactly does that look like? What does envy look like? Well, that brings us to the second thing, expressing envy. How does envy come to expression in our lives? and in our thoughts. Well, St. Augustine addressed this way back in the fifth century, and his thoughts are helpful for us today. And He mentions numerous things. The first thing he points out is that envy involves feelings of opposition to the talents, success, and good fortune of others. Now, notice how envy begins with subtle feelings. It starts at the level of the heart, sometimes maybe just an unspoken preference for sympathizing with another, in suffering, rather than celebrating someone else's successes. It's possible that it's easier for us to weep with those who are weeping than to rejoice with those who are rejoicing because there's something in us that that resents their rejoicing. We look at the good that another has been blessed with and we think to ourselves, that should be mine. I should have that and not that person. And so it's hard for us to rejoice with the successes of others. Instead, we have feelings of opposition to that. Tim Keller relates how the British actor John Gielgud reacted to the rave reviews that fellow British actor Laurence Olivier was receiving for his betrayal of Hamlet in 1948. And Gielgud admits this, when the critics raved for him, I wept. He was rejoicing and therefore I was weeping. He was rejoicing and therefore I was weeping. That's envy. That's envy. Closely related to this are other feelings. Feelings of pleasure at another's difficulties or failures. In other words, we would simply call this ill will toward another person. kind of comfort or pleasure in the failures or difficulties that another is is experiencing. When someone that we envy fails or messes up we may never mention this because it's actually rather embarrassing for us to admit that we envy another person so we may never even say it out loud but when that person fails or messes up we find it comforting there's something that gives us satisfaction in that so where where do we actually see this well one of the, the places i see it is with rival sports teams You ever notice that even if our team's not playing, even if the team that we cheer for is no longer in the playoffs, has no chance to win a championship, we still watch certain games closely only because we want to see other teams lose. My team may not be winning, but I'll take a great deal of delight in watching this other team fail. My team may not win, but as long as it's not the Patriots. I'm sorry, Romanos, <laughs> but you hear it all the time. Exactly. That was my next point. As long as it's not the Yankees, as long as it's not the Lakers, as long as it's not the Cardinals, because we envy their success oftentimes. We envy that success. And so it's not just that we want to win, it's that we take the light in someone else losing. And this may seem trivial. But let's, let's remember this, that those teams consist of human beings. Those are people's sons and daughters, They're their own husbands and wives and fathers and mothers that play those things. And we say things like, I hate them. That really shouldn't find a place in the church to speak that way, to dehumanize things that way really has no place in the church. And there is an element of envy that we allow to take root in our hearts with that. And we just accept it. Now, there's also people who apparently have some strange satisfaction in seeing other people pictured at their worst. Like even celebrities. Because people sell magazines on the basis of this kind of thing. As if somehow we should feel better about ourselves if these certain celebrities have cellulite too. Or have dad bods too. Why do we have any interest in these kinds of things? But, but there is this subtle delight and satisfaction in seeing someone else brought low. Why is that? What's going on in our hearts? Well, certainly, envy moves beyond mere feelings when it turns into belittling the accomplishments of another or making subtle digs that undermine someone else in the eyes of others. Often sounds like this, I don't know how she puts up with him. I don't know how she puts up with his arrogance and the fact that he's gone all the time. He doesn't deserve her. Of course, the implication is someone like me would deserve that. But there's these subtle digs to bring someone low. Yeah, I mean, she, she looks okay, but you know she really doesn't have anything else to do with her time but obsess about how she looks. And she's so narcissistic. Yeah, I know the other church is growing down the road quite a bit, but from my understanding, the sermons are all just feel-good sermons, all fluff. What's that kind of stuff about? Again, bringing, having some kind of satisfaction in bringing others down. Oftentimes, it's envy at work. And, of course, belittling can turn more insidious and to more attacking forms when it turns to outright gossip slander, or ridicule that's aimed to foster or organize antagonism against another. Washington DC seems to be completely infected with this kind of climate. I mean how many of the political campaign ads do you see that are merely devoted to smearing the reputation of their political rival rather than saying anything about proposed policies? There's this envy over position and power, and we see it in these kinds of campaign ads. And of course, envy can turn literally deadly, deadly, it can be a deadly sin when it aims to destroy, ruin, or kill another. You know, we hear stories sometimes in the news about love triangles that end with a murder-suicide or divorces where one parent kills him or herself, but before doing so, kills the children. We read stories like this and we think, why? Why would you do that? If you're taking yourself out anyway, why are you taking other people out? Even your own children, how does that happen? Well, it might be envy saying this. If you're not going to be happy with me, you're not going to be happy with anybody. And if you're going to take my children from me through this divorce, I'll at least make sure that you don't have them either. Envy can be deadly. It overrides natural affection because of the vileness in our hearts stirred up by envy. I mean, have you ever wondered if envy can be this deadly? Have you ever wondered why murder is not listed as one of the seven deadly sins traditionally? How can murder not be listed as one of the seven deadly sins? It's because the seven deadly sins are traditionally understood as the more fundamental root vices that take root in the heart and give rise to all kinds of other sins. And the roots of murder are indicated in the list, the traditional list of the seven deadly sins. Anger is there. A murdering in the heart, according to Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5, verse 22. And envy is here that led to the death of Jesus, again, according to Matthew chapter 27, verse 18. It's a serious, deadly sin that takes up residence in our hearts. And so, it's an important question to think about this morning. Is there someone in your life? Maybe someone that you work with. Maybe an associate. Maybe an acquaintance. Maybe a sibling. Maybe a classmate. Is there someone in your life to whom you are expressing these kinds of things? And could it be... That the, the expression of these kinds of things indicates that you are harboring the deadly sin of envy in your heart. Now, of course, not every expression of these things is an indication of envy, but where envy is operating in your heart, it's likely that some of these things will be expressed. So, is there someone in your life toward whom you are expressing these things? It can be deadly, it's evil. And the evil in envy is seen. And that it is opposed to loving another person. It's diametrically opposed to loving your neighbor. We heard David read already from 1 Corinthians 13 that love does not envy. Hatred envies. Envy is an expression of hatred because love aims at the well-being of another person. Envy aims at their ruin. It's a form of hatred. But not simply is envy opposed to loving others. Envy also undercuts our love for God. Because basically what envy says, it says to our God and it says this, the life you have given me is not good enough. You have taken what should be mine. You have taken what belongs to me and given it to another who shouldn't have it. One that I must now hate and despise. See, God ultimately gets the blame for this. And so again, and Dyke de Young writes this along these lines. God or fate or whatever implacable force allocated the goods at stake gets the ultimate blame for what the envier perceives is the unjust distribution of excellence. They feel cheated. I didn't get what I should have. There's an injustice that gets committed here. And so because of this sense of feeling cheated the victim of injustice. Whatever it takes to get what I think I deserve and whatever it takes to take from someone else that I think they don't deserve is justified regardless of how much devastation it ends up causing. And so this sense of feeling cheated and robbed damages our relationships with other people, damages our relationship with God, but it also damages ourself. Envy makes our bones rot. That's the point of the proverb. Envy makes our bones rot. See, we feel robbed and so we envy, but the real robber is envy. Envy robs us of any opportunity to experience contentment and happiness in life. It sucks all the joy out of life and it poisons our ability to respond to the things of life with gratitude and with joy. Someone has written that of all the deadly sins, only envy is no fun at all. Of all the deadly sins, only envy is no fun at all. And so that's why we must always be committed to eradicating envy. How do we go about eradicating envy? Well, eradicating envy requires radical surgery in the deepest recesses of our hearts. And the only physician capable of performing such a surgery is Jesus. We need Jesus to eradicate our envy. And more specifically, in eradicating envy, we need the cross of Jesus. We need the cross of Jesus to eradicate our envy, and that's because it's at the cross that we are confronted with the reality of our sin and what we deserve. It's at the cross that we are confronted with the reality of our sin and what we deserve, because remember, at the heart of envy is this belief that we deserve better. We have not been given what should be ours, and it's been given to someone else, and it shouldn't be theirs. Right? There's this belief that we deserve better. You look at the good that another has, and you think, that should be mine. That's what I deserve. But you know, there's only one place where you could look and truly say, that should be mine. That's what I deserve. And it's the cross. Do you want to know what you deserve from God because of your sin and rebellion, including the sin of your envy? You wanna know what that deserves? Look to the cross. Because what you and I deserve from God is not the affirmation, the acceptance, the adoration, the success, the respect, the happiness, the family, the friends, the relationships, the abilities, the skills and the brains that we see other people having. That's not what we deserve what we deserve from God in our sinfulness is judgment and wrath, pure and simple, that's it. Judgment and wrath is what we deserve as sinners. And so going to the cross that confronts us with our sin and what we deserve is the first step in eradicating envy. But when we go to the cross, we also hear the cross testifying to us that there Jesus forgives us of our sins, including our sin of envy. And so the cross confronts us with the reality of God's mercy and grace that we don't deserve. We go to the cross not only to have our sin exposed, but we see there the mercy and grace of God that we don't deserve. A free gift unearned. And it's in light of this mercy and grace that the proper response of humble gratitude can be cultivated where we can then learn to acknowledge that in God's grace, we have better than we deserve. As believers, when we put our faith in that grace and mercy offered to the cross, we have infinitely better than we deserve. We have forgiveness, divine acceptance, eternal life, adoption into his family, and an everlasting inheritance kept for us in glory. That's what we have, and so in light of those blessings that we receive at the cross, we also learn to trust God in his goodness, in his sovereignty, in his wisdom, and how he's allocated those gifts to us and how he's allocated those gifts to others. Because we recognize that we too are recipients of an infinite grace and mercy, more than we deserve. But also, in light of these gifts that we've received, It's at the cross that we're confronted with the reality of God's steadfast love that fills our hearts. And when our hearts are filled with the love of God and we find satisfaction in Him, our lives don't have to be based upon getting what we don't have because our hearts are satisfied and filled with who God is for us. Our lives don't have to be based on competition and rivalry to get from others what we want and think we deserve because our hearts are filled with the satisfaction and fulfillment of God's love for us. We find our identity in that, not in our skills or our, our abilities or what brings adoration and admiration from others. Our identity is rooted in who God is for us as our Father who has loved us with a steadfast love. And so in place of competition, the cross enables us to adopt a communal mindset, within the body of Christ that enables us to truly rejoice with those who are rejoicing in their blessings because we truly believe that what benefits one benefits all of us because we're no longer in competition because our hearts have been made full in the love of Christ displayed at the cross. So is there envy in your heart this morning? If there is, confess that. Be honest about it. Confess the sin of envy operating in your heart and take it to the cross. Take it to the cross where you're confronted with your sin and what you don't deserve or what you do deserve. Take it to the cross where you're confronted with the reality of God's grace and mercy and all the gifts and blessings that you don't deserve. And take it to the cross where you're confronted with the reality of God's steadfast love for you. And at that cross of our Savior Jesus, we will find grace enough to satisfy our hearts in that love and we will find grace enough to love others genuinely with the love that he has so freely loved us through his son.